0: This is Unaided, the brand building podcast brought to you by LeakSide, a Team Snap company. Get ready to learn about brand marketing strategy from the experts. Here's your host, Evan
1: Brandoff. Hello and welcome to the Win Grin Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brandoff. Today, we welcome Jared Kolan onto the show. Jared is the CE Fro of FroKnowsPhoto.com. Jared has built a massive YouTube and social following and helps over 1 million people improve their photography skills. Let's get started. Jared, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. So first off, most importantly, how's bowling season going?
0: We have one week under our belt from last week. My average was in the high 180s and it's proceeded to drop (laughs) down to probably 178 or 179 when I go back next week. I was in the zone for a while. I really, I've made a tweak. I made a change. I was hovering around 210 for a minute. What happens is you miss spares. And then when you don't stack strikes, when you're not stacking strikes on strikes. But for a while, I was, I started with six in one game and then got scared. And then it was going well. One day I'll build a bowling alley in a property I own. But that's a goal for the future. What was the tweak? The tweak was I stopped riding the left, right? So I stopped starting on the left side and I moved over right of center and I started to throw out towards the second and third board and it would hug and then come back in. So I was throwing cross to come back instead of just trying to throw straight and then have it hook over off the left-hand side. So that tweak... That tweak really exploded it because I was just crushing the pocket better.
1: So Jared and I met in a bowling league a couple of years ago now, maybe three years ago. And I would say you always score well, but there are two things that you are consistently the top at in our league. Best, what do you think? Yeah.
0: Best arms in a sleeveless shirt. And sort
1: of. Yes, that's and, one. And, oh, you're going to say how hard I throw the ball? how hard you throw the ball, and I was going to say style. I love it that you guys are consistently repping the I shoot raw. Yeah,
0: Uh, we try.
1: And I was hoping for that muscle shirt on the podcast. I'm a little disappointed that you're wearing a sweatshirt.
0: When it's it's 21 degrees out, I generally don't wear the muscle shirt. Fair enough.
1: Well, I am psyched to have you on the show today. For our listeners that aren't familiar with Freno's photo. Can you give everyone a brief overview?
0: Yeah, I make fun and informative videos to help photographers and videographers of all skill levels. The whole thing that when I started 12 years ago was to make fun and informative. So basically create content that's going to help people. That's not boring. That's the fun part. And informative is it It can't just be fun. It needs to actually teach people. So that's the type of content I make. It's photography based and there's, Over 3,000 videos that I've done, and it's about helping you become a better photographer. And it's not some boring, right? It's not the boring stuff that you're used to sitting through in school. We physically show you watch me on photo shoots. You get to look through my camera because I record my electronic viewfinder. So you see exactly what I see as I zoom, as I move, as I change my settings. You get to see it all. And so I like to teach as if it was like Mr. Rogers and Bob Ross with this mix of Howard Stern in there so that it keeps it cranking.
1: I love it. So if there was a drop-down menu where you just had to choose one out of photographer, content creator, teacher, what would you say you are? What's your superpower?
0: Well, if people ask me what I do, I'm a photographer who so happens to make YouTube videos at this point. But it's a lot more than all of that. As a creative and a business owner, you are a marketer, a brander, an advertiser, you're an ad buyer, you're an ad seller, right? Because we sell all of this stuff. So it's more like a creative agency all wrapped up in one. So I'm my own creative agency for my own brand, right? Because I get people that come along and like, oh, would you be able to work with us on making content and doing what you do for us? And I'm like, no, no, because we don't take jobs from other people. Everything that we do is for us. When I say we, I have two employees full-time. One's a mainly does editing. Another is an editor, a producer, a shooter, audio video engineer. He does it all. We call him a predator because they do everything. And so we don't work for other people because we're working for the brand. Right. To make our content. Yeah.
1: And you've done such a great job at doing that. And I'm excited to dive more into Ferno's Photo. I want to take a step back before we do it. But to that point, if a brand has a lucrative enough offer, what is the reason that you wouldn't entertain doing what you've done
0: for your own brand? Well, would take away from my productivity. Yeah. If I had three other editors sitting on the side and other shooters that I could go direct and brainstorm and have them go create, that's a different story. Right. But if we start deviating from what makes us successful in our world, then we're taking away from creating content here to just trade time for dollars. And you know what they say in business when you're trading time for dollars. It's not what I want to do. Now, with that being said, we do have companies and brands that come to us that would like to throw big money at us to promote something. And that becomes a whole different ballgame because now we're creating for our brand. We're getting paid well to do it. So that helps push us forward to be successful because obviously you got to get paid, which a lot of people forget, like this is a business. Please don't forget that YouTubers need to be a business and i've got two employees that have to get health care and they got to get paid and they have families and mortgages and it's a that's the stuff that weighs on my head as a business owner and i'm sure you understand that is that there's
1: an obligation from me to make sure that they are taken care of right and to that point that's why it could be easy to chase the money take on an account that wants to pay you to build their brand and that focus that you're speaking to, that longer term vision is what I think one thing that has led to all the success that you've had and investing all the time and resources into building your own brand. Yeah, I mean, I would consult the out of companies (laughs) if they would listen. The problem is
0: you give them everything. You say everything that you feel and think they should do, they just can't go and execute it for the most part, right? right? They need someone to do it and then they never go all in which is part of the reason why I started Frono's Photo when I did, before that, in the mid-2000s, 2006, five, six, seven, I was working with bands, low-level bands, doing social media before social media was even a thing, right? Before Mm -hmm. it was even a, (laughs) I was out on tour with Perry Farrell, and he's not a low-level band, but I was out on tour with Perry, and my job was to help him get more spins on MySpace, Hmm. right? you weren't old enough for that. But MySpace, you would go on, they added the music player, and it would count, right? Every time there was a play. It also would count every time you refreshed the damn page. So it wasn't exactly perfect analytics, but we took them from 300 a day to 3,000. And it wasn't from me sitting there pressing refresh. It was just from uploading content to MySpace every day from the tour. That's what it was. And so... The problem was I was trying to work with other bands and I was suggesting things to do and they wouldn't listen. Hmm. I'm like, you have five members in a band. All right, you love photography, you like food, you love music, you love movies, and then you like something else. So I'm like, one day a week, all I ask is you to make one piece of content for me a week and we will post it on your website and each week you do that, right? You only need to do one thing that's four pieces of content a month. For each of you. But that equals a lot of content five days a week to keep people interested in coming back for more. and They never listened, So I did it myself. And that's what it came down to. I'm like, you know what? These guys aren't going to listen. I'm just going to figure it out and do all the things that I thought would work and try to implement it for myself.
1: That's interesting. was the problem that they didn't listen or that they genuinely just didn't know how to create this content. And by the way, I am old enough to be formally best friends with Tom on MySpace.
0: Well, yeah, I, when people are like, who was in your top eight? I have to think back like, oh, what is top eight? I forgot. Right? I totally <laughs> forgot that was a thing. So I just think it was a lack of motivation for them to actually want to do it. Right. They had the support. We would go make the content with them. I had the camera, right? I could do it. I could help them. We had camcorders at that time and be like, just give me an article, write me something, do something, do a review. It's not hard, but they never wanted to do it. Right. And so now a lot of
1: I have a larger following than most bands.
0: And so it's just, you know, yes.
1: Yeah. Your following is massive now. What is your latest following?
0: YouTube's like, 1.35 million or so
1: in That's subscribers.
0: Huge. It's huge. Subscriber numbers can be, be very misleading to people. So, you know, as a business, some people look at the wrong analytics or they take certain analytics and they blow them out of proportion. Agencies do this all the time. The agencies that are hired to work with companies will pull out metrics out of their a- that are meaningless. They'll pull out metrics like impressions. There were 100 million impressions on this. It was like, right what about conversions? What about what action was taken, right? They just love pulling shit out to make it seem bloated and inflated that they actually did something. So they make up these metrics and it's meaningless.
1: What metrics are important to you when, when right, looking well, at look, your
0: following pace if, if, if you're a brand and you're a business out there looking to work with content creators, because you want to spend some budget and you know you need to be there. It's not about how many Instagram. Followers, these people have because these so called influencers on Instagram, they may have a million followers, but if you look and they have a thousand likes on something, you're like, yeah, that just doesn't seem right. Or you look and it's a lot of, hey, for nude pics, follow me, you know, here's my OnlyFans because the bots just are all over it. There's no value there. So if you look and someone has a massive following and you can look at reels, reels tell you their numbers, right? Like this girl, Amanda Cerny, I don't like the content she's got like 26 million followers and stuff. I don't know how valuable those specific followers are because it's a lot of, let me show you my breasts and stuff, but still gets 2-3 million views on a reel. That's a lot of eyeballs. That's effective, right? When you have millions, but you're actually getting millions of views on something, that means that it actually is doing something. So if you're looking at people's like YouTube channel, if you look and they put up a video and they've got 5 million subscribers, yet they get A 1,000 views or 20,000 views and no interactions, you don't want to spend your money there. You're better off spending your money on a smaller, newer creator who has a 1,000 to 5,000 consistent or 10,000 consistent views with a smaller following because you might be able to convert them more. Right. But you just don't want to just dump money just to dump money for someone to do... I'm all about long-term partnerships. It's better to have a long-term partnership because I can add more value over time by just over-delivering and under-promising. It's just, if someone tries to put constraints on me, like we need four of this and five of this, I'm like, leave me alone. Because if you leave me alone, you're going to get 35 of this. I'm just going to do it. But I don't like one-offs. One-offs are just... It's hard for someone to see the brand once and be like, oh, Jared said this, I need to go buy it.
1: So when you are putting out new content, are you thinking about is the goal a certain percentage of your followers watches that content? Or what is the goal when you're putting out something new? Well,
0: we want people to watch our videos. Yeah, right. so the other thing is views. Views are more important than subscribers in this day and age because subscriber growth isn't the same as it used to be. It used to be like, the more subscribers, the better. But now it's views and watch time. The metrics we want to see, we want to see how many people watch the video. We aim to get 100,000 views on every video. we will be very happy with 100,000 views. You know, if we do 50,000, cool. Maybe it's not the best ever, but that's still 50,000 people. And you got to wrap your head around it. That's like 50,000 that watch it. Cause I used to get upset. I used to get upset. I get 20,000 views on something. I'm like, hmm.
1: I'm
0: <laughs> like, that's terrible. But then you have to remember that's 20,000 people that watched your content. So we go for views, but also watch time. Watch time is a metric that's super important and YouTube looks at as a very high impact metric. If you have people click on your video, but drop off after 30 seconds because you're not delivering any value to them, then YouTube's gonna be like, well, this is garbage. We're not gonna promote it out into the the universe, into the system. But we do Photo News Fix, which is a news show. It's six to seven minutes long. It's three news stories. It gets 70% watch through. It's straight across the metric. You know, you always get a little dip at the beginning, a down dip, because nobody just, people click and then leave for whatever reason, but it's straight across. I mean, if you have a metric that is straight across for watch time, that means nobody is leaving. Mm. They watch it. So anybody that starts it basically finishes watching that video. So that's an unbelievable piece of content. It averages 100,000 views. I have a plug that can be dedicated in the beginning that we can generate revenue from,
1: and it gets great watch time. That's interesting. So does... Just so I understand the algorithm correctly... Does watch time, consistent watch time, is that what yields the algorithm sharing your video more and therefore getting more views? No one knows how this all works. It's always changing. There's always
0: tweaks to be made. That's why people that chase hacks for algorithms are going to lose. It's a long game. So if you make quality, consistent content that people engage with, you're going to get a leg up versus people that just chase the algorithm. It's better, you know, I didn't have a video have a million views until like seven years in. I think it was better that I had a slow build because I didn't want to just, I'm not chasing a million every time. So the important metrics are watch time and click-through rate. So if you have a video that's getting clicked on a lot and people are watching it for a longer amount of time, YouTube turns around and recommends that to more people. If you have a video that people click on and then abandon quickly, YouTube goes, your click-through rate is dropping. We're not going to show this to anybody else because this is content. Maybe you need to think about doing something else. Right. They say it nicer, but it still means exactly that. Right. You know, comments, people commenting, people sharing. It's the fun, Hitting that like fun, button. So we don't know if the like button actually has any algorithmic backing because they got rid of the dislike just for one single dislike button. There's people that say... The like button is not tied in with anything for giving you more value. It's just a metric that people can see. Hmm. But nobody really but, knows.
1: Yeah. I'm trying to understand why the like button wouldn't be used in the algorithm.
0: I don't know why either. But it's like, why would the dislike button at the time wasn't a part of it? It was more of a way to show people that, oh, this video has a thousand likes and only 14 dislikes to show someone that the video is good, another metric. But now that they've gotten rid of the dislike button, I can still see the dislikes on the back end. Like if you're worried about creators' mental health and dislikes, you would have gotten rid of it altogether, not just let us look at it on the back end and in the front, just not. It will show you (laughs) likes, it doesn't show you dislikes. I don't worry about that stuff anymore. We know that people just hate me, hate my videos no matter what. They're gonna dislike, but they're still gonna watch. So there's just people that just love to dislike right off the bat.
1: Well, I assume it must take you so much time to come up with consistent content that is quality and yields a 70% watch time. How much time do you spend each week creating content? Not as much
0: as I used to, because I used to put out a video a day. A couple of years ago, we made the conscious effort and change to do less content, but better quality. Mm -hmm. We made a focus on better thumbnails and better titles. Because before, I was like, well, this is what the video is about. So let's just call it that. But that's not clicky enough for people to just engage with right away. So we incorporate, as people will call it clickbait, but I will tell you it's not clickbait if it delivers. It's just a good headline. And I always come back to the Titanic. The headline on the newspaper was Titanic Sinks, 1500 Dead, right? Is that clickbait? That's a good headline. You're going to open up the newspaper to read more. And if the newspaper, you opened it up and it's like the 1,500 dead were plants, right? Then you'd right. be like, you tricked me into clicking on this. So yeah, <laughs> in terms of your question, though, we try to do two to three videos a week to put out. Some of them start the process, uh, you know, like a couple of weeks, like I, on the set behind me, I might film a script. That's where I do a lot of scripted stuff that will get recorded and then sit in the can until we can edit it. Photo News Fix is edited every week, so that's a weekly show. That takes a day and a half for my editor to do. I write, so, so for him to edit, I write the script myself and then I go down to my set downstairs and I flick on all the light and record myself. And then my editor comes and gets a card where I upload it and he downloads it and he edits. And then my other guy is out doing other videos at the same time. The goal is two to three videos a week. Sometimes I can make simple, easy videos that may get they're not big videos they may be 40 or 50,000 type views generally would call that like a filler piece of content but it still has value we call that like a critique i'll do a rapid fire critique of people's 10 best photos that they submitted and i'll do a critique and i'll give some information like here's what i would do here's how i would change my settings there's a lot of good value there it's just not clickbaity for hundreds of thousands of people to watch it's right.
1: just not but when 40 or 50,000 people watch it it's still good so what comes first The headline or the content in the video? Right. That's a good
0: question. It depends on the video. So sometimes we'll come up with a good title and we'll build a video, we'll craft a video around it. Mm -hmm. Other times it's, you know, like Nikon comes out with the Z9, the title is going to write itself. Nikon Z9 or official Nikon Z9 preview. Stuff like that. That writes itself. But we make a conscious effort to sit there and come up with 10, 15, 20 titles before we narrow it down to the one that we're going to use. And it helps to type these out. Steven, my other guy, my editor, We, I'll write up titles, then I'll bounce them off of him or we'll sit there and I just write everything down that comes to mind, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Because what happens is he might say something that triggers something in my brain and I'm like, okay, let's go with that word and then change this out and then do that. It works. Like It really works. You have to use psychology to just grab people. But with that being said, you can't just be chasing clickbait all the time. Because if you title something that has nothing to do, like that it works, right? you get a lot of clicks, but do you get a lot of long-term views off the video? So if you don't have keywords and tags in the video that are going to be searched out in the future, then that video is dead after it right. gets those initial views after a couple of days. So we have different types of content. Photo News Fix is not meant to live on past a week. It's a weekly show. It's meant to grab you fast, get you to watch it, enjoy it, get a 100,000 views, and then it will trickle with a couple more later. We do something called a user guide where someone gets a new camera and I take the new basic camera, I sit and you watch me go through the menu system and I explain how I would set up this camera. And if it's a beginner camera, I'm talking to people as if they've never had a camera before. because. Usually the people buying that don't, so I make it as simple as possible and explain it. And that video may be an hour long, right? So the watch time will be 15, 20 minutes, but it's not about that. It's about helping people set up their camera and get introduced to my world on YouTube. So they're gonna find me because they're gonna search out that camera. That video is gonna do really bad in the first month. Really bad, first month, maybe first two months, maybe first six months. But what happens is those lower end cameras There's so many of them. They end up at Walmart. They end up at Costco. They end up being sold for 400 bucks, right? They're not super expensive. So it's an impulse buy for some. some. And then they search YouTube and they find me. So those videos over a five, six, seven year period can have over a million views. So it's a long burn. We know that people enter my sphere and subscribe the most from those basic educational videos. And so there's different types of content that we make which are geared towards different types of we'll call them funnels for people to get into my ecosystem. Because the thing I tell people about YouTube is every video you make is an advertisement or a commercial for you. It's free to put up,
1: but it's an advertisement for you, which is a good thing. Going off of that, what advice would you give to someone that has zero followers and wants to get into... Or they have a passion. They want to tell people about their passion and teach people. Where do you start? Well, one, you just start.
0: That's always the first thing. But when it comes to YouTube, you might want to look for the trends and catchy keywords that are important and that are going on. Like finance channels have blown up on YouTube. They may start imploding because when the market implodes, these guys are, you see them for what they are. They have no clue. They're not financial advisors. They're just people who are sharing what they've done. And when the market's running up for 12 years, they look like geniuses. But you can't just be like, my day at work. Nobody's going to watch your day at work. Not even me. Yeah, no one's going to watch your day at work. No (laughs) No one cares. But if you're like Andre Iguodala, right? If you bring in names, if you ride a trend of something that's hot, like when Prince Harry got married and they released the photos, I did a critique of the wedding photos from the wedding. Because that's topical at the time. And so... Mm it's like three, 400,000 views because people were interested in, may not have been interested in photography, or what I had to say, but they were searching for Prince Harry and wedding photos and Megan's photos, right? So if you can latch onto something that is topical and you have some value to give and you give it and people watch and they start to like it, it's one thing to do it once, but you need to follow it up consistently. So you need to use, so like in the photography sphere, gear sells, right? Gear is what people want to see. So if you, see a new camera come out and you take it out into the world and you do photos with it and you have an opinion and you share that and you put that in the title and the tags, then you have a better chance of gaining followers from that. And once you gain followers, then you can start branching off into the other content that may not be as click-worthy, but is still valuable. Right. So it's a lot of work. Of course, it's a lot of work to do it. And don't think that you'll put out one, two, three videos and be super successful. There have been people that have done that. But this is a slow build. For some, it's a slow build and it's not a six month thing. You got to go all in and you got to go all
1: in for a while. So you have one point, a little over 1.3 million followers now on YouTube. And let's focus on YouTube here for a second. That's approximately five chunks of 250,000 viewers, right? To get to the 1.3 million. How would you rank the difficulty? Of acquiring each of those two hundred fifty thousand chunk. I assume the first two hundred fifty thousand is the most difficult. Is that right? Well, I mean,
0: the first thousand are the most difficult. But right when you go back, just what I tell people is everybody starts with zero. I started with zero. The biggest YouTuber started. Mr. Beast started with zero. Mr. Beast struggled for like five years putting out videos before he had like ten thousand subscribers. Who knows?
1: At what point do you pull the plug? At what point do you think? all right, this is not getting any traction. Well,
0: if you're getting like 100 views every video and it's never growing, right? right, If you're not doing something, if all you do is a talking head video, there's no reason someone would watch it. Mm -hmm. And so if you're putting out content, but it's not going anywhere, you're either not doing the right thing and you need to pivot and change to something else and try some other things, or then you do pull the plug. But I'm not talking about pulling the plug after two videos. You need to go at it, but you need to be smart and try things. People know what they're doing wrong. They know when they take shortcuts. The person has to know themselves enough to tell themselves they need to do a better job. Mm -hmm. But it's also not super easy. There's no definitive answer because someone can start a YouTube channel today and still be super successful and get 100,000 subscribers and turn it into a business. Right, do you do any advertising? Do I spend money on ads? No, zero. It's all organic growth since day one. And we sell product, right? I sell presets. I utilize my videos to promote my own products. So if it's a review of a new camera lens, halfway through the video, it's let me jump in here real quick to show you this picture, and I cut to my computer, to show you this picture taken with this lens, edited with my Fro Pack 3. And then I like, here's what that looks like. So we take about 45 seconds to 60 seconds in the middle, showing people how the presets work and what they do. And then I cut back to the camera and say, look, if you'd like to pick these up, they're currently on sale, or you could save even more when you get the triple play bundle, check them out. And it works really well. We sell a ton of that stuff. One thing that a lot of creators don't do is have their own product or promote their own stuff often, right? People are getting your stuff for free. They're not paying to watch my videos. So they'll thank me for all the free content by supporting me. And if someone unsubscribes because they can't handle seeing me do a plug to keep this business going, then I don't want them. They can go away. Or they can just hit the button. There's an arrow key, right? (laughs) Like I tell people, Mike, if you don't like my plug, there's an arrow key. Hit it three times and you're past it. (laughs) Jared, when did you get into photography? 13 years old was someone else that, it yeah i was in junior high school i was at a basketball game watching from the bleachers and there were these yearbook photographers that were taking pictures of warmups of the players just standing around and in my head that didn't seem right it seemed like they were not shooting things that they should have been shooting right there's no action going on there's no story there not that i knew what story or all that meant at the time and so i borrowed my mom's point shoot camera and took it back to the next game sat on the baseline took pictures of basketball, and the timing, even with a point-and-shoot camera, was there, right? I knew the moments to capture. These were action shots of players coming up to the basket, going up for layups. I knew, like it just clicked. It made sense to me that they were doing something wrong, and so instead of telling them that they and were doing it wrong, which is the modern way of doing things, I put my money where my mouth is and I did it myself. And the same thing happened with YouTube. When I started making YouTube videos, one of the, there's multiple reasons why I started, but one reason was I saw this guy had 36,000 views on a video and I completely and utterly disagreed with everything he had to say. And so instead of going to the comments and being like, I could do better, I'm like, I've got a camera that shoots video. I've got something to say. Why don't I do it? And so I did. That was the precipice for doing it. And then I befriended that guy who had, that information so I could take his following. And that's why he was European, he was in Europe, and that's why I had a large European following at the very beginning, is because I worked with him on his channel, we did some collaboration videos, and I built by utilizing his followers at the beginning.
1: Hmm, how many views did your first video get?
0: I have no idea. Back in the day, it was like, you'd get 200 views, and then it would grow to like 400, and then 900, Then you get a 1,000, and you get back to 600. And then it was just... (laughs) Look, I thought I was hot with 5,000 subscribers back in the day. Yeah.
1: I didn't know any different. I just went. I just did it. Yeah. It's impressive. You mentioned you borrowed your mom's camera. Was she a photographer? She was the one who basically in the family would take
0: pictures when we traveled. She had an early Betamax camcorder in the 80s to film us. She had no formal training. There was a lot of snapshots of us smiling at Disney World and stuff like that. Occasionally, there was a good photojournalistic type shot that I've seen when I've dug through the archives type of stuff because I scanned everything. But no, she was a creative. And so she was always there with a camera. And yeah, I grabbed the camera and I shot. Were you close with your mom? Not as close as I should have been when she died. It's one of the reasons why I started my channel was my mom wanted to learn more about photography and I didn't take the time to say, let's go out and shoot, and I'll help you learn the camera better. So I never took that opportunity. And that's one of the regrets. I don't do regrets for anything, but that's the only thing, right? That I didn't take the time to show her that. Like, I don't know what I was doing other than nothing much, where I couldn't have said, hey, it's Saturday. Why don't we go to the park and
1: shoot? Right. Did you shoot that first video before or after she passed?
0: She died in 2008. I didn't start Frono's photo till
1: 2010. Okay.
0: So it was a long time coming after. It wasn't the reason, like it's one of the reasons that I look back at on why I do what I do, but it wasn't, it didn't exactly push me at that time to figure it out. I mean, sometimes you just figure it out. I was attempting videos in 2007 or eight, maybe a little later than that, but I didn't have an idea of what I was doing yet. And I did, I posted some videos just trying stuff. But And I had a Squarespace that I started and I could see that I was getting like 800 to 1,000 unique visitors a day as I was blogging about photography and putting up some content. But I wasn't in a place yet where I had the framework for how it would work. And that took some time. I went to an internet conference, and I think internet conferences are a bunch of and the people that were uh, at this conference were getting their heads blown up with this, like, you can be successful. You can exploit any niche, right? Even if you're not into it, you could start a blog on dog walking and all this. Shit. And my head got blown up at this event as well. Because I'm like, I could do something. I could do this. I could do that. It didn't work. Like, but I was a photographer. I never paid to go to that thing. I offered to shoot the event because someone's like, you need to go to this thing. And I actually talked to the guy many, many years later and I told him that his event was that everything he said at his event, I ended up doing the opposite of hmm. and becoming successful. He didn't get upset because he was like, you're right. That stuff was garbage. He admitted back then that it was bad. It wasn't scammy. It was just and if you listen, so everything they built was all about everything at the time was continuity programs on the internet. like. Charge people $65 a month or 67 Most of the time, they forget about it and you just keep getting the residual payments. Or it was harder to cancel back then because they didn't have as many regulations. So they just slammed them into it. And so their whole thing was how much to acquire a new customer. I come along and you're like, I'm not going to charge people. I'm going to do it for free. Because I think that if I can reach more people, I'll end up making more money in the long run. And right. so I ended up giving free. make free content which then has turned into a hell of a lot more money than these guys because they've long disappeared and I've continued to build. They were always blown away when they're like, how many views do you get on YouTube? If I had that many views, I would be selling this many products. It's like, well, you don't because everything's hidden behind a paywall. How's anybody gonna know that you exist? Right? (laughs) I'm not angry. (laughs) I'm just passionate.
1: You know, and from my experience, starting league side, one of the hardest things as an early entrepreneur is you connect with all of these quote unquote experts. They all have advice for you and they're, you know, they have conviction in the advice they're giving you. And then sometimes it can be contracting advice and just focusing on your business and thinking about what you know about your business and not listening to those external experts is, is so difficult. And
0: I don't like asking for help often, right? Like Gary Vee, as a name to mention, a lot of people know Gary Vee. I met him and we had some conversations at another event that I was at and he thought my hair pick as a business card was brilliant, right? And whether he was full of shit or not, he took an interest and he cared and he would drop me a line every once in a while. And I ended up in his Crushed It book, the next one that he put out. They interviewed me for the book and they ended up having the story of how I got started in there. But just because of the hustle culture that was being pushed by Gary may not work for most people. And it's something that was bothering me over the years and I had to stop following it because I'm like, He's traveling all over the world doing all this stuff. He's so busy. I'm not doing all this. You know, Why aren't I doing the same thing? And so it became tiresome. So what I found that has worked the best for me to block out a lot of noise is stop following people that piss me off. And I'm not saying piss me off like I don't like them or anything. It's just prime example. Randy Zuckerberg, Mark's sister, who I sold a picture to back in the day, has become this NFT evangelist because she ended up on a board for something Did you miss out on Bitcoin 10 years ago? Well, it's at a discount now. And this was before it tumbled to 30,000 again. And it's just like, you can get it at a discount. It's just pushing. Man, I did a lot of research into NFTs recently, right? Just to validate my thinking in my brain, I started to watch as many videos and read up on stuff to see if I'm missing something about the whole NFT world. And I'm not missing something about the whole NFT world. I'm not missing it. What I was thinking was legitimate is what's happening. The underlying aspect of it will be successful in some situations in the future. We understand that writing things in the blockchain absolutely will happen. But this selling collectibles as NFTs right now is going to crash and burn. There will be some survivors. Like, I just don't understand. You get those pixeled monkeys and you're selling it's like, this is worth a million dollars. You're like, really? What value? is there. And it's what you find is, well, it's the scarcity. And someone's like, I own this. So it's like, my dick is bigger than yours. And that's what they want to show. They want to show that. It's just very frustrating that a lot of people who can't afford to get hurt are the ones that are going to get hurt. The same thing with the meme stocks that were running up when they ran up. They would get in, not know what they're doing. The stock would crash. They'd sell and they'd lose.
1: Yeah. So what's interesting to me about NFT is, I mean, if you go on Twitter, every Fortune 500 CEO has something about NFT in their bio. So there's going to be so much invested into making this a thing. But what I don't understand is you could right click on an NFT and hit copy. And then you have the exact version, well, the exact you, version. Yes, of, of you the have NFT.
0: that, but yeah. you don't own the the one. Like, I get that. Gary Vee is opening a restaurant, NFT restaurant where to gain access, you're buying a membership, but the token is the NFT. That's the token part. You're buying the NFT for like 10 grand to gain access just to eat at this bar. Then there's like a $40,000 one, which gains access to the omakase room. Is it actual
1: food or is it digital? You're going to be be
0: eating actual food. That's a membership, right? But the wealthy are the ones that can purchase a lot of this stuff right now and afford to lose out if it crashes, because they can. So there's value to be had. There's absolutely a future there. When it's tied in with incentives, I get it, but it's also like raffling shit off, like Gary doing his V friends. I know I'm using him as a whole thing here, but the V friends, you're like, great. It's a drawing of a kind koala, right? <laughs> and it allows you to get access to Gary's VCon and all of this other stuff or get a one-minute Zoom call with Gary. So they're tying that, they're using these real-world tangible things to try and give value to the fake thing. Anyway, right. I'm no uh,
1: NFT evangelist. (laughs) Neither am I. But Jared, I know you got to go in a couple of minutes, but you're mentoring someone, which is incredible. So the last part of this interview is called the lightning round. I've got four questions, got two minutes to answer them. So just first things that come to mind. First question, what is your favorite youth sports memory? I mean, I scored on a penalty
0: shot in hockey. I didn't know that I scored, but I deeked. I triple deeked. <laughs> i tripled dig from uh from the mighty from, ducks uh, from the mighty ducks and i put it through the five hole i couldn't see because the goalie was so big but it actually went in and that was one of the goals that helped us win in a shootout wow but youth memories you know my dad coached some stuff so there's always that i won a championship with little league with my brother's team i was 10 he was 12 and you know stuff like that you used to like playing sports yeah when sports. you were young what did you want to be when you grew up when I was five in Montessori school, they asked me, they said, Jared, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm like, a YouTuber. And they're like, what's that? I'm like, exactly.
1: And I said I wanted to be <laughs> big on the
0: internet, but I don't know. Was like, YouTube, when did YouTube come around? 2005, okay. 2006 Yeah, was when it started. I was always some kind of creative, like an artist. I always drew or painted or did something. I didn't really have much of a direction but it had something to do with being creative. And when photography became a thing at 13, it's like, I didn't want to do anything else. And anything that I ever tried to do, even if I was trying to get a job at a realtor, but I still wanted to be the photographer side of it. I'm like, look, if we did photos of your listings, this was before they really did good photos of listings. Yeah. I'm like, if you did this and this, you could sell houses. Like I'm a salesperson. I could sell the out of anything. Right. right? But, No, I didn't get that job. But every job, basically (laughs) the point I'm trying to say is every job I ever went for, I tried to incorporate my creativity, creative side into it, but I couldn't work for other people anyway. So,
1: Right. I watched the Curb episode last night when Larry goes and becomes a car dealer for a day. I need to watch that one. It's a good one. It's a first season. It's a throwback. Go all the way back.
0: (laughs) That show pissed me off because it was so, so hard to watch him because you just get so angry. You know, yeah. But I've watched
1: a lot of the new ones and you're like, oh, that's true. That's <laughs> it's amazing that it's still going. Jared, what is a brand whose marketing you admire most? Well, I was
0: a big fan of Polaroid. I love Polaroid's advertising. Edwin Land did some tremendous stuff. So Edwin Land used to do these product reveals. Steve Jobs learned a lot of what he did from watching Edwin Land do these product announcements. Because he would have a camera covered by a cloth, stand there the whole time talking about it, then take the cloth off and like take a picture. And it was developed in 60 seconds. And it was just a whole show. He would do these press conferences. And so what Polaroid did for years until they imploded, and same with Kodak, the colors, the brands, just the marketing that they did. I loved what Polaroid did. And I loved what
1: Kodak did. Hmm. And final question... What is your go-to cause to support?
0: I love giving the gift of photography, which is helping photographers, that people that may never have, this is multifaceted, so I know it's rapid fire and lightning, but the gift of photography is giving photos to people who may never have seen an awesome photo of themselves or never had a professional photographer photograph them. Mm. So you can't hire me right now to do jobs because I just don't like working for people. But if somebody, if there's a, something that I want to photograph, I'll go and do it, and my gift is giving them the images right and that means a lot and so giving people a photo book a leave behind that's what i want to see that's what i enjoy i have a thing called fund a photographer where i've got hundreds of cameras to give away to students and to schools and i've been doing that and so you know giving someone a camera that they would have never been able to afford ever or a good lens to go with it to give them a jump start is amazing so helping someone who might never have an opportunity like this by being able to give them something that i never had when i was younger but now I'm in a position that I can give this stuff to people. So kicking someone in the ass when they're young that hopefully leads them in a direction of being what they want to be, just being able to help someone, that. Those are the causes.
1: Love it. Jared, not only was this fun, you were interesting and so educational. I think that our followers are going to get a ton out of this. So thank you so much for coming on today. You're welcome. I'm not yelling. I'm just
0: passionate. People take it the wrong way. Like he's yelling. Why is he so angry? I'm not angry. I'm just
1: passionate. I know you're passionate. But does it get to you that people think that you're yelling and not pat? No, it doesn't bother. The people that know me understand it. And they understand that I'm
0: not, I'm not angry at you. I'm sharing my thoughts. And that's just how my brain gets flowing, right? I get animated. So I just stop and let people know every once in a while. Like, I'm not not yelling at you. I'm just yelling at you,
1: but not at you. (laughs) Well, I think that animation is part of your personality that has built an incredible brand. So keep doing what you're doing. I'm really excited to see what's next for you. And let's get you back on the show again sometime soon. Sounds good to me. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Jared Polin. As a recap, we discussed how to build an audience on YouTube and other social channels, the importance of consistency when producing content, the metrics that actually matter when measuring the following, and so much more. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Evan Brandoff. See you next time. Play on, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating at leagueside.com slash podcast. For more educational and inspiring content, you can follow LeagueSide on LinkedIn and Instagram at LeagueSide underscore. See you next time.